From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Every two years, the California High-Speed Rail Authority is required to submit an updated business plan. What are the biggest challenges confronting the high-speed rail project, and does the newest business plan make the changes necessary to make the vision a reality? We'll ask Tom Van Heek with the California Legislative Analyst Office, John Kapal with the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, and Tom Richards, the Vice Chair of the High-Speed Rail Authority Board. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. High Speed Rail was first endorsed by the voters in 2008. What is the project's current status and what is the plan going forward? Our guest is Tom Van Hickey, an expert in the high-speed rail project with the nonpartisan California Legislative Analyst Office. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thanks for having me, Mark. So, Tom, um, can you give us a quick overview of the high-speed rail project? Certainly. The high-speed rail project proposes to construct a high-speed rail system connecting San Francisco to Anaheim via the Central Valley. And Los Angeles trains in that system would run in excess of 200 miles per hour. To design and build this, the legislature established the High-Speed Rail Authority, that's a state entity, in 1996. Mm -hmm. And then in 2008, the voters of the state approved Proposition 1A. That approved $10 billion in in, uh, bond funding, excuse me, to partially fund construction of of the project. Yeah, it was interesting when I was reading reading some of the stuff that you've written. It talks about electric trains capable of operating. Capable. I mean, not necessarily they're going to go 200 miles an hour, but they have to be capable of doing that. So. The project is divided into two phases. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you briefly explain the two phases? Sure. So phase one of the project is what we were just talking about, connecting San Francisco to Anaheim. That's about 500 miles. And can we call, uh, call it L.A.? Sure. Close enough. Close <laughs> enough. Uh, phase two, which is sort of more conceptual at this stage, would extend the system to Sacramento in the north and to San Diego in the south. Previously, the authority estimated completing phase one in 2029 at a cost mm-hmm. of about $64 billion. And there are no estimates right now for the cost or timeline on phase two. Okay, so phase two is, is just really conceptual at this point. That's right. It sounds yeah. like. Um, so let's talk about the delivery plan for at least phase one. Let's sure. focus on that. That's yeah. the you know San Francisco to L.A. for lack of a, I know I'm short-circuiting here a little bit, but uh, sure. L.A. to San Francisco portion. So how is phase one going to be built out and at what cost? Yeah, the authority is planning to build phase one in, in segments and portions, starting with the connection between the Bay Area and the Central Valley. The first full high-speed rail services would operate on, on that line, and you'll often hear that referred to as the initial operating segment, And so it's kind of the, the valley-to-valley segment. That's right. Um, but it's not high-speed rail all the way into San Francisco. I mean, it's, it's, they've got Caltrain, right? So There's a Caltrain corridor there. A blended there. system, they, they call it. They propose to share the tracks with Caltrain between about San Jose and into San Francisco. Some of those services would probably not be running at a full high-speed I, I don't see how they're going to go to 200 miles. Yeah. Yeah. zooming up the peninsula at 200 miles an hour. There are safety concerns around that. So the trains from San Jose into San Francisco would likely run at slower speeds, sharing the tracks w- with Caltrain. But you get, you get a one-seat ride from San Francisco down into the Central Valley on a high-speed rail train. So you've got so you've got this phase one. Is, let's call it the um, you know L.A. to um, to San Francisco. Uh, what is it uh, going to, to cost to build out that segment? Again? Phase one's total construction cost is currently estimated at seventy-seven billion dollars. That's an increase over the previous estimate, and that came out of a new business plan that was released this year. Okay, so uh, pretty expensive. Uh, seventy-seven mm-hmm. billion dollars probably got people. This is, remember, 2008, this was a $10 billion bond measure. That's right. By the way, did they assume that that was going to pay for the total cost? No, the bonds were always proposed as a partial funding mechanism, and then the idea was that 
hopefully about a third of the funds would come from the federal government, about a third from the private sector, and about a third from the state. Um, as it's turned out, that hasn't quite uh, well, played out in, in reality. Yeah, and, and, and I think if you, if you look at this like historically on major infrastructure projects around the country, typically the federal government does step in. That, that third wasn't unreasonable to assume because you right. see like 50% sometimes. Sometimes as much as 80 on, on some rail projects. Right, yeah. So it's, it wasn't unreasonable at the time, but politics, things change, and yep. it's nowhere near that. So where is the money coming from then to pay for high-speed rail? Yeah, well, so far, the authorities identified three main funding sources. The first is that $10 billion we talked about. That's the bond funding approved by the voters. The second is about... Well, let's talk about this for just a second before yeah. we run because I know others, but I want to get through this a little more detail. Sure. So of that $10 billion, has that all been spent? No, no. Uh, actually, only a small share of it's been spent so far, uh, maybe 2 $3 billion to this point. Okay. Uh, so there's quite a bit left in, in, in the bank, as it were, to, to tap into. Okay. Um, Can beyond- that money be used for anything else? So a share of the bond money is actually allocated for what are called connectivity projects. These are um, improvements to transit lines that would feed into the high-speed rail system. Caltrain, maybe? Caltrain, for example, um, they're a funding partner on the electrification of the Caltrain corridor Mm -hmm. in the peninsula. Um, Otherwise, improvements to BART, for example, or LA Metro, that would feed into the high-speed rail line, which is conceived of as sort of a spine to a larger rail network in the state. Okay, and then you got federal funds. About $3.5 billion in federal funds that came through the stimulus package in 2009. And then there's an ongoing stream of funds from the cap-and-trade program, valued at about $750 million a year on the high end. And the cap-and-trade program, of course, is the state's emissions reductions program. Right. And selling permits to polluters generates funds, and those right. revenues are allocated accordingly by the legislature throughout the state. And, and, and they, they designate 25% of those about funds. About a quarter of those funds are coming to the authority each and every year until 2030. Okay, we're going to talk a little more about some of the bigger challenges outlined in the latest business plan in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Tom Van Hickey with the nonpartisan California Legislative Analyst Office about the major features of the most recent business plan for the high-speed rail project. So um, regarding the, the most recent business plan, how has it changed in terms of the scope of the, the, this thing called the initial operating segment, which is valley to valley? That's right. right? So, so the Silicon Valley to the Central Valley. How has that changed? Yeah, the authority released its latest business plan in the spring of 2018, which it's required to do in every even-numbered year, and it introduced a couple of important project developments, including this scope change to the initial operating segment. So previously, the segment was to connect San Jose to Shafter, which is a community just, Shafter, I don't think people, just north of Bakersfield. It's kind of the argument yeah. you hear from politicians that train to nowhere. No disrespect to Shafter, but people are saying train to nowhere. Yeah, there was a proposal for a temporary station in this small town. Well, now the authority wants to extend this line into San Francisco and into Bakersfield proper, so connecting which makes sense. larger population centers. Right. right. Right, um, and it's going to take a little longer, isn't it? It is about four years longer now. They're they're assuming a, a launch of operations in twenty twenty. Doesn't take four years to get you from from Shafter to Bakersfield, but there's other things, exactly. complications in the project. That's I mean, right. there's things buying parcels has been a, been a big issue. And, Utility relocation has been, and they, a didn't, they were surprised by that in Fresno, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that that cost them some things. That's right. Another change was a call for interim services. What are they talking about there? Yeah, in an effort to begin delivering mobility benefits to the state as soon as possible, the authority is now proposing to launch these early interim services on completed. Portions of this route as early as 2027. So this could include separate services, one in the Central Valley and one on the peninsula in the Bay Area. So you're going to have, in a sense, you're going to have these two, one going like from Gilroy to San Jose, Mm -hmm. another one going from, I guess, what, Madera to Bakersfield or something. Yeah, that's right. They're not going to be connected. They won't be connected But they may be used... By Correct. Amtrak or something? Yeah, that's right. So there are currently services that operate in these areas. So Amtrak, San Joaquin service in the Central Valley, the Caltrain commuter service in the Bay Area. And they're proposing that those could be enhanced to use these new pieces of infrastructure. Because now they're sharing, Amtrak shares it with, with the freight lines. The freight lines, that's so, right. So, I mean, great if you're going from Bakersfield, going to Sacramento. I mean, you're, the first half of the trip or whatever is going to be pretty fast. Yep. 
you're in Fresno, you're only going 20 miles to Madeira, and mm-hmm. not much of a in- uh, difference. Right. Those are some of the consequences, potentially, of that. Yeah, but, 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 but having the, the train go from Gilroy to uh, San Jose, I think that would be kind of significant because of housing issues. Yeah, it's possible that this would allow for electrified and enhanced Caltrain commuter service on that corridor, and that could be beneficial to ease some of the, the housing challenges. In yeah, the I think they see this as potential, a potential benefit. I mean, if you ever drive those roads going to the Bay Area, and there's some people taking super long commutes, mm-hmm. yes. either in from Gilroy or up from you know, like um, Madeira, Merced, into the, into the yeah. Bay Area, it's, these are... You know, they're getting up at four in the morning. That's right. So there could be some early benefits there. Uh, yeah. So um, the project's construction costs, those have also been revised. How? Yes, the costs have been revised upward. Uh, no, the, not, not really surprised. Okay. <laughs> the, the total cost to complete construction from San Francisco down to greater Los Angeles is now estimated at $77 billion, which we okay. talked about earlier. That's about $13 billion higher than the previous official estimate of 64. And there are several reasons for that increase, mm-hmm. uh, one of which is they're now building greater contingency estimates into their, into their projections. More of an ish. Mm-hmm, exactly. Right. Uh, there's been some cost escalation due to these schedule delays that we're seeing. So there's inflation right. in the industry. Right. Uh, and then there are just greater costs for completing the construction that's already underway in the Central Valley. Yeah, yeah, it's not surprising. So the fl- funding plan, that's also changed a little bit. How has that changed? Well, as you know, Mark, this project hadn't, hasn't had a complete funding plan since its inception. It's always been in a very constrained funding environment. Mm-hmm. The authority has tried to address that in its recent business plan, and it's sketched out a funding plan that better meets its articulated needs, but it does rely on a couple of really important assumptions. The first is that the cap-and-trade program that we talked about earlier is extended to 2050. and then the authority, Right now it ends at 2030. Correct. Yeah. And then the authority would securitize the additional revenues from that extension. So, so that, like, getting a, like getting a loan on, on, exactly. on the income. You have a job, you have a certain amount of money coming in, yeah. so you get a loan. And- they They'd bring those future revenues forward in sort of a lump sum right, to right. make some major procurements and then pay it off over time, somewhat like a loan, as you said. It's possible that would be sufficient to complete construction to Bakersfield from San Francisco, uh, but probably not much further. And then the second assumption is that there would be additional funding available to complete that balance of construction from Bakersfield into down, LA. Down LA. But the authority is not very clear on where that money might come from. It suggests maybe federal funds, maybe securitizing net operating revenues from the early services, but those are big question marks. Yeah, they're not putting any dollar amounts. Okay, so... Uh, what are some of the issues you think still need to be considered? Well, the foremost issue for consideration is the fact that at this time the authority does not have a complete and viable funding plan for the completion of, of the project. They've secured about $13 billion in funding so far. They have that $750 million a year from cap and trade going forward to 2030, but that's simply not enough to get even the first segment of the first phase done. So the authorities propose securitizing cap-and-trade revenues, maybe net operating revenues in the future, but there's great uncertainty about the viability of those approaches. And it's not even clear that in the most optimistic scenarios, enough money would be generated from those approaches to actually complete the work. And that raises another important issue, which is that costs could still escalate further. Uh, the range that the authority proposes runs as high as $98 billion for completion of, of phase one. So ultimately, the success of this project does rely on a sort of a reliable funding commitment, and the authority just doesn't have that right now. Okay. I want to thank Tom Van Hickey from uh, the LAO's office. Up next, what do the critics say? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. High-speed rail is not without its skeptics. One of them is our guest, John Kapal with the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Pleasure to be here. So what do you think about the most recent business plan? Do you think it's more realistic in terms of cost estimates? Uh, no. I think all the business plans that have been produced up to this point should be in the fiction section of the bookstore. Uh, you know, until we have a comprehensive audit and that audit is completed, I don't think we'll have a grasp as to what the business plan uh, can be or should be. We opposed, as you well know, we opposed the high-speed rail project from the very beginning. In fact, even before it passed by the voters, 
which it barely passed in the year that Obama was elected president, uh, we commissioned with the Reason Foundation a due diligence study, and it was co-authored by a former vice president of Amtrak, a big pro-rail guy. Every transportation expert who has looked at this said, high-speed rail may be good for Asia, may be good for Europe, can't work in California, and, and that's where we are right now. The federal money isn't there, the private money isn't there, the fare box revenue projections are off the chart, and the costs, of course, well, have, have... Let me ask you this. Sure. I mean, some people say that you know, the critics are, are negating the fact, or at least minimizing, kind of the environmental and economic benefits. So in okay. air quality, you know, uh, uh, the money coming in uh, for economic opportunities for Central Valley, sure. housing opportunities for people that live in, in Silicon Valley. Shouldn't they be part of any cost-benefit analysis? I, absolutely, absolutely. And let's talk about the greenhouse gas emissions. Remember, this project is being held on life support by the, by the cap-and-trade cap and re- revenue. But even LAO says that the project itself will be a net producer of greenhouse gas for the foreseeable future. And think about it. If the, fair, if the ridership isn't what they projected, and of course we argue and have shown that it's way off, then what you've got is a project that's producing greenhouse gases, not reducing them. So that doesn't, I mean, nothing, nothing is more productive of greenhouse gas emissions than having traffic stopped on a freeway. That's where we should be spending that money into lane capacity and roads. Now, I'm going to get to that in a second. So let me ask you that. Let me ask, get into that. So projections are that California's population is going to increase about 10 million people in the next sure. 40 years. That's the size of the state of Ohio. That's a mm-hmm. lot of people. Um, you know, there is a limit to how many more lanes of highway, highway lane miles we can add. Sure. Or even adding to our airports. There's a limit in terms of, of capacity, what we can do there. Shouldn't a comprehensive transportation system include a viable statewide passenger rail system? Yes. And it should be a conventional rail system. Uh, we would be all in support of expanding Amtrak uh, to Los Angeles. You don't Baker- want to take that Baker- bus from Bakersfield to we Los Angeles? We don't want to take that. <laughs> and look, I, I, I've taken the bus from... Uh, uh, taking the train from, well, actually, the bus for, from Sacramento to Stockton to pick up the train to Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. I like it better when you have the, the full train ride. Right. Not a bad experience. I've taken the Capitol Corridor down, down to the, the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are legitimate systems, systems that, and we fully recognize that they will not be self-sustaining, that, they, that there's some degree of subsidy that has to happen. But the subsidy projections in order to put, to fully implement high-speed rail, Look, the fare box re- revenue won't cover 1% of operating costs. Um, so if, if transportation dollars are limited, we know that, right? Right. So how, what are the factors that should be considered when determining how to spend those dollars? Well, a lot. Number one, efficiency, cost effective, uh, effectiveness. Whether or not this, the transportation agencies and systems we have now are being well run, well, legislative analyst says that Caltrans is overstaffed, we well, they did kind of back off that. They did the, say $500 million uh, yeah. in expenditures, and they kind of backed off that recently. Yeah, they did back off, but it's still in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, uh, I, California fails to contract out much of the work that it could relative to other states. That's just one example. Regulatory red tape as it involves environmental uh, projects. There's a lot that can be done. Caltrans in the 50s and 60s was the best transportation uh, agency recognized worldwide. Um, unfortunately, Governor Brown version 1.0, when he brought in uh, Adriana Gianturco, really destroyed that agency and has never recovered from that. Let me ask you this, one last question. So what do sure. you say to those who say, you know, California used to think big, aqueducts, UC, uh, the CSU system, uh, have we lost that capacity to think big? Um, 
No, I think there's nothing wrong with thinking big as long as you think big with planning. And when you think big without planning, what you have is the high-speed rail project. Well, that's a, a good way to sum up. Thank you very much, John. Up next, what do the supporters of high-speed rail think? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking about the most recent business plan for high-speed rail. We're now joined by Tom Richards, the vice chair of High-Speed Rail Authority Board. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you. So um, critics say that your cost estimates are still a little unrealistic and that in any event, how in the heck can you project out into the future? Um, so how can the public trust your numbers? Well, first of all, we're pretty satisfied with our cost estimates today in the 2018 business plan. They're certainly far more developed than they were eight or nine years ago when we started this, uh, in my case, on the board. Um, everything that we've, we are developing today is based upon better experience and now being under construction for three years. So that what I would say to you is that the numbers that we had before uh, back then was without a lot of experience. We've got that experience. Um, our numbers have, have moved from 68.4 in 2012 to 77.1. We're not happy with that, but that's because we were better able to define the uncertainties that we didn't know in 2012. Right. I, don't, I don't know if any, any project, private or public, that always comes in exactly what you assume when you first start the project, right? That's we would have liked to have been the first, but that wasn't <laughs> right. okay. part. So. Yeah. Uh, good try. Um, okay, so critics also allege that the revenue projections are a bit uncertain. Um, they're saying that, for example, that the business plan assumes that the cap and trade program is going to be extended from 2030, the current deadline, to 2050, mm -hmm. and that high-speed rail is going to be able to leverage that money to get loans. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it, we, perhaps it, uh, it's been misunderstood. The intent of putting that in there was what would happen if cap and trade got extended to 2050. We did not assume it, and it wasn't included in, this, in the uh, plan that we put together for 2018. It only suggests that if it was, we would be able to leverage future earnings from cap and trade and accelerate the, the uh, construction of the project. And it's kind of like the idea of the, it's something like getting a, buying a house, right? You use your wages to get your mortgage, and in this situation, you're using this bonds. money. <laughs> right. <laughs> to get bonds, and, uh, et cetera. Um, well, let me ask you this. So uh, the most uh, recent business plan also says um, that there's going to be federal funding, or could be federal funding. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Um, some people kind of question, you know, why do you think the federal government's going to step in and support high-speed rail in California? That's been a role that the federal government's played for for century, uh, centuries, for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, it paid for 90% of the interstate highway system. It pays 90%? 90%. It pays for, it paid for, and commonly pays for 50% or more of regional uh, rail passenger uh, programs like the Bay Area Rapid Transit. So it's not unrealistic to assume the federal government will eventually put more money into this project. And what's interesting is this is one of the largest infrastructure projects, well, I think it's ever in California, maybe even in the country. Yes. So you would expect, you know, like, historically, you'd expect the federal government to step and in. And we think that the election is certainly would indicate to us that we're far more hopeful to have a bipartisan uh, infrastructure package come through the Congress. You know, the most recent business plan suggests that the money necessary to complete the San Francisco to L.A. line could, co could come from revenue generated from the Silicon Valley, Central Valley line. Mm -hmm. uh, yet there's no money earmarked specifically to complete the Valley to Valley line. So, you know, if it does get built, what net, net revenues are you projecting? We're projecting uh, that we can probably generate, based upon uh, proving, our, proving our ridership and revenue, 
that it could be capitalized uh, for somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 7.9 to 13.7 billion. So some some money. You could generate yes, some money. Substantial from that. amount of money. Okay. Let me ask you the last question here. We got about a minute left in the segment, and I just wanted to ask you about this. You know, there are a lot of people that say, or I should say, there are some people that say that this money could be better spent on other infrastructure needs. Oh, we need you know dams for water, or housing, or healthcare, et cetera. Even for transportation, they just build more highways. Um, what's your response to that? Well, California's got a lot of challenges, and we're capable of resolving more than one at a time. And that's what we're doing with high-speed rail. The chewing gum and walking at the same time analogy? We we do that well in California. Um, Transportation is a big part of economic vitality in this state and meeting the environmental goals that we've got. High-speed rail fits that bill perfectly. Well, I want to thank our guest, Tom Richards, with the California High-Speed Rail Authority, as well as Tom Van Heek with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office, and John Kapal with the Harvard Jarvis uh, Taxpayers Association. Thanks all of them for joining us, and thank you for joining us. This is Mark Kepler for The Matty Report. The views expressed in The Matty Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or The Matty Institute. There's no question that high-speed rail is a big-ticket item. But the $200 billion state budget has a lot of big-ticket items. Up next, a closer look at some of the bigger items in the state budget. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, on KMJ. Each year, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst publishes the California Spending Plan that summarizes the annual state budget. How is the state of California going to spend its almost $200 billion budget? We'll ask. Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Just how does the state spend your taxpayer dollars? Our guest would know. He's Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst and the recognized authority on the state budget. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Nice to be with you again, Mark. So each year, the governor proposes a budget in January. Uh, what did Governor Brown propose for fiscal year 18-19 uh, back uh, last January? Well, the governor's budget does come out in early January. That sort of s- sets the framework for budget discussions. And we had fairly good revenue growth. But the governor basically was proposing what I like to think of as what we budget folks call a, a workload budget. That is, he wasn't proposing lots of new programs, or expanding existing programs. It's like, whatever we were funding, let's continue to fund. You might have cost increases or, mm-hmm. you know, caseload growth, but we're just going to fund what we fund. And so what the governor did with all this new money, he basically put it in reserves. He wanted to increase the reserves, both the required reserves that we can talk about <clears throat> a little bit more that were required under Proposition 2 of 1914 that the voters approved, but also some discretionary reserves. And then whatever money he did spend, it was primarily on one-time He doesn't like getting over his skis, does he? He no, likes he, to kind of be fiscally prudent. He really has taken to the theme that we established many, many years ago that, you know what, we have a very volatile revenue structure, and, and you need to save for that rainy day. So, you know, each May, uh, people might not know this, but each May, after the April tax receipts come in, uh, the governor revises his January budget with something called the May Revision. A lot of people call it the May Revise, and yes. that's grammatically incorrect, but anyway. May Revision is what we <laughs> The May Revision is the correct way to say it. How did the governor's budget change this last May? Well, the, the key development in May, as you say, after we learned about how much personal income tax revenue came in, we had a lot more money. And back in January, we thought we would have more money, and so we tried mm-hmm. to sort of prepare the legislature for that. Turns out we had about $7.5 billion more over the whole budget window. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money, even for a budget as large as ours. Now, 
some costs went up also. We had some uh, Medi-Cal, which is a health program for low-income people. We had some costs go up there. School spending went up. So that additional revenue was offset by some additional costs. But the governor did propose to increase reserves even more. And he also proposed a lot of one-time expenditures, particularly in the capital outlay area. Right. So, so one time, is not, it's not going to be continuing, obviously, year after year after year, just, just one-time hit. So then you go forward to June, and the governor and the legislature settle on a final budget. Um, how did that differ from the May revision? You know, it was kind of a combination of, of uh, the reserves were a little bit less, more what the governor had proposed in January. There was a little more spending. Uh, the legislature obviously negotiates with the governor. There was more money, for example, for universities. There was more money put in for homelessness. Um, but I would say the overall framework was pretty much what the governor laid out. We're going to put a lot of money aside for reserves. And when we do spend money, it's going to be primarily for one-time things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you take a look at a budget, I've, I've always thought, I disagree with me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of your, it's the objective manifestation of policy, right? Isn't that what a budget is? It's setting your priorities. Right. I mean, and, that's in, in a very tangible way. And year to year, the whole reason you have an annual budget, the same way that you reevaluate your own personal budget mm-hmm. is, well, what do we want to do now? What is of higher priority? What is of lower priority? And it, it seems pretty clear to the governor, uh, to Governor Brown, at least in his last budget, what higher education was a priority, setting aside money for reserve Well, was and a for the legislature. They actually and legislature, of course. money, too. Yes, of course. Uh, and so that's that give and take between the two branches. But, but clearly preparing for the next uh, recession, in effect, was one of the governor's highest priorities. He, he keeps talking about that. I mean, and if you look at it, and, and if you look at historically, we've been in a pretty good economic growth pattern for a while now, and it's like it seems like we're due. I'm not asking you for a prediction, but it just it seems like, wow, this has been going on for a while. You know, we started uh, turning around. I think the recession technically ended in uh, 2009, so we're coming on a decade of growth. It's one of the longest recovery periods in our you know modern history. Yeah, that makes people a little nervous. So it, the overall spending picture for the state of California, excluding federal funds and bond funds. How would you describe it? I mean, how much has spending increased generally and how much specifically for the general fund and for the, the special funds? Yeah, there's the two types that you just mentioned. The general mm-hmm. fund is what you would think as your main operating account. Mm-hmm. Your, your main checking account is where okay. we put most of our money in, and it can be spent for any reason, any purpose at all. Right. But then we have what these that are called, and it's a smaller part of our budget. It's probably 40% of what our general fund budget is, special funds. And you just think of those as money that's paid, but it's usually spent and dedicated towards a particular purpose. Right. If you are a contractor or have a, a license. Box. Well, <laughs> I don't want to make a lockbox, <laughs> but think of it if you, were a, a, you had to be a, a, have a license to, uh, to, uh, for your occupation. Right. right. You would pay a fee, right. and it would go for that purpose of regulating your profession. Right. Okay. So, um, and so there's some money there in, in the special funds as well as the general funds. Um, the general fund grew r- relatively rapidly. Yeah, was, I think I was reading, was it 9%? 9%, which is a big year-to-year a year yeah. over year increase. Special funds did not grow that much, about 2%. Okay, well, up next, um, how did the state decide to spend your money? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking about how taxpayer dollars are being spent by the state with Mac Taylor, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst. So, we're talking about uh, the state's budgets, about $200 billion total budget. Uh, of that, the legislature has about $10 billion in what's called discretionary general fund money after. Uh, they fund existing programs. Can you explain that whole that discrepancy? Sure, and it might be better to compare that $10 billion against the general fund's total budget of about $140 billion. Okay. So, so what does that mean? And it goes back to this notion we were just talking about on a workload budget. Like you say, if you sort of fund what you've been doing, do you have monies left over for other priorities? It could be reducing taxes, increasing spending, building up reserves. 
And given all the new money that came, particularly in May, we estimated that, you know, the legislature and the governor had about $10 billion in what we call discretionary, that is... Money to play with. Kind of money to play with. But again, that could be for reserves or reducing tax, whatever you want to do with it. And uh, so that was the amount that we tried to characterize. Well, sort of what happened with that money? Right. Yeah. It's interesting. You were saying, you know, discretionary, this discretionary money excludes dollars controlled by constitutional funding requirements like Prop 98. Prop exactly. 98 is a big cut of the budget. It's 40% of the budget, and it has its own formulas. And so whatever those formulas would dictate, if it grows by 2 or 3% or whatever, that's part of the workload budget. And then right. you have money above that you could add to this educational spending or, or other purposes. Could, if, for, for, for a layperson, I kind of look at, okay, I pay a mortgage on a house. I know if I'm projecting next year's budget, I know I'm going to be spending this much money on my mortgage. But I, I haven't got a raise, so where can I spend the additional money? And it might be that your mortgage was a variable rate. Okay. So your existing program wouldn't be what you were spending this year. It was what you're going to have to pay next year under that variable rate. Right. But it's still the same program. Right. So, so we would try to look above that and say, okay, well, after you pay for your higher interest rate on your variable, what do you have left over for other priorities of your family? Okay. So let's talk about um, that for a second. How did the governor of the legislature allocate that $10 billion Again, specifically? The number one reason, almost half of those monies went for additional reserves. Rainy day, well, isn't that just the rainy day fund, but just no. it's putting money aside. Yeah, these are additional monies yeah. on top of that that they wanted to set aside um, just to make available for the legislature and the, and the governor to be able They're to use. They're putting a lot of money aside. They are setting aside a lot of money. But remember, you have to think about the state's revenue structure. It is very volatile. It can swing tens of billions of dollars from a good year growth to, to going uh, below and, what you're And, and explain for, for audience why, is it, why is it so volatile. It's volatile for a variety of reasons, but basically because we rely on the personal income tax, and much of the personal income tax is paid by 1% of taxpayers. Okay, so, so it's very progressive. It's, it's, so capital gains? And capital gains and other forms of volatile income like business income, stock option, bonuses. When the stock market is doing well, California is we do doing fantastic. Of course, the reverse is also true. And that's the problem. That's why Governor Brown in particular has kept talking about what, how fast you can lose money if you turn to an, into a recession. So let's talk about revenues for a minute. Um, what are the projections uh, for the state for 2018-19? And how much uh, has the general fund taxes actually increased? You know, they're projected to increase in this current year by about 4% on the big three taxes. And those big three are personal income, sales tax, and corporate tax. But the general fund we talked earlier was increasing at 9%. The spending was. We actually okay. spent down on some of our discretionary reserves year over year. It's a little counterintuitive because okay. we're building up these other revenues. Okay. But, so revenue growth was, was pretty good in 1819. It was especially good in 1718. So we're coming off a very big year. Um, but so the, the growth was, was not, you know, particularly rapid. But, uh, and we actually felt like the administration was probably underestimating revenues for okay. the year. Yeah, he, that's actually a trick that he's used more than once. Well, I wouldn't call it, <laughs> oh, okay, I I wouldn't call it a trick. trick. It's, it's, a, it's, it's being cautious. Cautious, right. It's, it's an approach. But uh, I think a, as a result of that approach, which is a perfectly justifiable thing if you're, you want to be careful that you don't overcommit, but... It has meant that we've tended to raise our estimates of revenues once well, they finally came But out. one of the caveats with, with setting us out of reserve is that money's not, quote-unquote, being used mm-hmm. um, for, for services, goods and services. So that's the quid pro quo. It's not like you're... It's like free money that you just put aside. Right, it means right. it's not available for other things. Right. So, um, so I want to ask you about uh, the final budget packet assumes in 1819 we'll end up with a $16 billion reserve. Um, all this money isn't in just one rainy day account. It's actually in several accounts. 
Can you explain a little bit about the different accounts? How much is in each? What are the limitations? Sure. I think that's a really important question. Uh, let me focus on two that really have most of our reserves. The first one is uh, based on Proposition 2 of 1914 when we set up this rainy day fund. And it's very important because this is uh, guided by constitutional rules. How much money goes in each year based on how much capital gains we have, what total revenues are, and the constitutional rules guide how you can take money out of it. So the legislature doesn't have a lot of control over right. that. Right. Okay. And that has most of the reserves. Uh, the $16 billion you mentioned, almost $14 billion, is in this so-called rainy day. Is it, is it, I want to say, is that 10% of the it, general fund? When people passed Proposition 2, it had a 10% sort of, it's not a cap as much as it's a target level, but what happens once you hit 10%, Monies are used for a, for a different reason. The other reserve is just what we call the free reserve. It would just be like your checking account balance mm -hmm. that's available for you to do whatever you want. And it is guided by statute. Legislature can do whatever it wants with that. But a lot less. A, a lot, lot less, less right, right now. Right, right, right now. now. Okay. Well, this year's budget generally focused on one-time spending and building more reserves. Uh, the money uh, was spent on a variety of other issues. We're going to talk about those in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with California's legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, about uh, the 2018-19 uh, state spending plan. Education, we talked about it earlier, lion's share of the budget, 60, uh, I'm sorry, 40% 40, 40 of the budget. Um, and you said that there's considerable uh, new spending in virtually every education segment uh, from early childhood through college. So early education, um, how did it do under the budget? Early education, which uh, consists of both child care programs and preschool, which has a more, obviously more mm. educational aspect to it, uh, did extremely well. They had about a 16% increase wow. in their spending year over year. And there was basically two components of that. We provided a lot more slots, that is, places for kids mm. uh, throughout the state. And we also increased reimbursement rates that we pay to providers uh, and with the thought that, you know, that will encourage uh, more supply. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, the pre-K stuff has been going on. There's been discussions about this for a long time. The, the former um, Senate Pro Tem, Daryl Steinberg, I believe, was was a proponent of, of pre-K. You know, they want to have universal pre-K. That's another issue, um, but that's a pretty big ticket item. Um, that, that would cost a lot more money because we're right. not serving all the people who are eligible. Right. Um, but, but, but on a year-to-year -year basis, this was a substantial increase. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that they increased the number of slots, but they also increased, re, uh, increased the uh, reimbursement rates because... If you have the slots, but you don't have anybody willing to do the job, then it's like you don't have the slots, exactly. right? So you've got to do the, the reimbursement rates. So what about uh, K-12 education? K-12 education, um, also, which as we said, is the biggest single piece of the budget. And they got a rather large year-to-year -year increase in discretionary money. They've been doing well for years. Now. They, I mean, they've been doing very well for, because we had to sort of make up right. from when we had reduced spending during the Great Recession. And they've been getting a big chunk of revenue increases. Uh, so they have been doing very well. And I would say 1819 was another very good year. Uh, they had about $5.8 billion increase of effectively over what had been committed in 1718. Uh, most of this was for ongoing. Right. Almost all of the money went into our basic funding formula, that just money that's distributed, uh, distributed to schools. That's the local control funding formula. Exactly. Which kind of gives the locals the ability to decide how they're going to spend that money, which I'm sure they really like. Yes, and we had set targets, the funding that we wanted to reach by some in the out years, and we've mm -hmm. reached it early. We mm -hmm. have fully funded that on local control funding format targets that we'd set three or four years ago. So most of the money just went to that. 
And then there was a big chunk of spending that was for one time, a variety of one-time things, with the biggest piece being, again, these what we call discretionary grants to locals. They could use it for any one-time purpose that they wanted. There, there's a lot of focus, in, and it seems like to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the way the budget is going by the legislature and the governor toward um, low-performing schools and students, uh, people that are a little bit more educationally challenged to try to raise those, those numbers, those levels. The whole local control funding formula is geared towards giving considerably more money uh, for students who are either low-income com- low or English learners. Yeah, and the argument would be that, that they probably need more help, more assistance in kind of uh, getting, getting their academic achievement up and closing that ac- academic achievement gap, which is Which is considerable, and, right. and that was the theory behind the, the whole formula. Well, we got community. What about community colleges? Um, you know, and the other things like career technical education, online community colleges, what's, what's happening there? Uh, community colleges who've also been doing very well, mm-hmm. again, as this funding formula, Proposition 98, yeah. has required large increases in recent years. And in 1819, they also got a, like a $1.2 billion they're part increase. Of, it's interesting. It's, they're part of Prop 90. People forget that community colleges are part of that calculation. They take about uh, just over a tenth of the total Prop 98, but they are part of that calculation. And the whole Prop 98 which is K-12 and community colleges, is about 40% of our whole budget. If you add in the universities, that's where you get to almost half the budget is for education. Right. So we're talking talk about that. So I think I, I, I may have cut you off in terms of online community colleges. There's money for that. There's something that Governor Brown has been pushing. Yes. There's a lot of one-time things again. Uh, there's also about 800 of that $1.2 billion was just generally going money out for per-student increases. Right. So again, uh, community college district just had a lot more discretion over having more money to spend in whatever way they thought was appropriate to serve their local community. And then there's higher education, the UC and the CSUs. Right. Uh, and they did fairly well. Uh, general fund support for the uh, CSU system increased by 9.5%. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a little bit overstated for a couple of reasons. Some of that money was only for on a one-time basis. Okay. And there are generally no tuition increases. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a, there's a hook there. You can have the money, but... Well, and then you have to think, well, tuition supports a pretty big a part of their core program. Right. And if you're not allowing that funding source to increase, you've got, you got to make it up almost on the other part. So that 9.5 after you adjust for, th- for those two things isn't anywhere near as gr- great as it might seem. Yeah, one, one last thing I want to ask you in this segment, that is about health care and mental health. How does they do with, in the state budget? Um, they did, there were some interesting developments in that. For example, in health care, uh, because of the tax increases on cigarettes that the voters recently mm-hmm. approved, there was a large chunk of money, over $820 million, that went to the Medi-Cal program for basically for rate increases for providers of Again, healthcare. with the rate increases, yeah, because you want people to actually provide Have the access. service. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, more with Mac Taylor in a moment about the state spending plan. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. I'm talking with Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, about the 2018-19 state spending plan. Um, homelessness, big issue. Um, housing, big issue because of the sky-high housing prices and uh, rents and whatnot. Uh, no one expects that the uh, state's going to be able to fix the housing issue by state spending alone. Um, however, uh, there is a considerable amount of state spending to address this issue. Um, what is, what's happening with the state budget when it comes to homelessness and housing issues? Yeah, I mean, I think your point is a good one, that most housing is provided by the private sector, and there's not a problem in or not huge problems necessarily in providing homes for, for many types of people. What is more difficult is housing for certain, uh, certain groups, and I think the homeless is one where the legislature has been particularly concerned. So they dedicated on a one-time basis $500 million 
which is a, which is a good chunk of money. Right. And these are grants to local governments. You know, I wanted to ask you that because I thought about when I was reading that in your report, I'm thinking, is that RDA 2.0? You used to have something called redevelopment agencies no. that would give money to local governments and they could spend it. No, this is really just money going to to uh, local governments that could spend for a variety of homelessness-related uh, okay. projects. So I, I was reading too much into that. Yes, I think so. Okay, which happens. Um, that's why you're here to correct me. All right, so there's the issue of, related issue of poverty. Um, according to the Public Policy Institute of California, four out of ten Californians live near or below poverty levels. And if you took away the state safety net, like things like CalFresh, CalWorks, uh, earned income tax credits, uh, this it would result in about half of all Californians uh, being at or near the poverty level. So how is poverty addressed in the state budget? You know, I think the legislature has been very concerned about this now for several years, and they took a variety of steps. Uh, two of the bigger ones uh, where they increased cash assistance payments to people for you know temporary assistance. Mm-hmm. That's called the CalWORKs program in, in California. Uh, they also um, incre- they, they did something for poor and disabled seniors. Uh, and it's called a cash-out program, but basically it made them eligible for food benefits, what okay. we used to call food stamps. Just before they couldn't get it. Uh, they couldn't get it because they had this little $10 cash-out, but they're, they'll be eligible for a lot more benefits. Most people, most of the uh, seniors and disabled, would be eligible for a lot more total benefits uh, with this action that the legislature took. And there's the earned income tax credit, which is a way to kind of encourage people to work if they're lower income. Very low income people. We expanded right. that. We have a, there's a federal uh, earned income tax credit. The state adopted one several years ago. They expanded it to include more people. So I would say a variety, including the homelessness grants that we right. just talked about, a lot of different a variety of steps to, to try to address some of these issues. And helping the, the elderly, the disabled, uh, et cetera. Let me ask you this. Um, there's also another $1.5 billion in there for various infrastructure projects. What exactly uh, are they putting money up for? Again, this are these one-time things right. that the governor liked. If we're going to spend one-time things, we're higher on his right. priority list. Uh, most of it is in capital outlay, infrastructure. And there was a big project that was part of this. Why was it there? <laughs> There is one big project. It's on. Because I heard it. I heard it in, in campaign ads. They're spending all this money for a nice place for themselves. And what are they talking about there? It's called the Capital Annex. It's the building in back of the the old traditional Capitol that houses all of the members and much of their staff. Mm-hmm. The building is fairly dilapidated, mm-hmm. and something had to be done. And so they finally took action to dedicate some monies to start the planning process to build a new capital annex. And I think their hope is it'll be a much friendlier building, not only for the people who use it, but for people who visit the yeah, capital. I, I guess there was $630 million for the capital annex. Um, and if, if you've been in the capital, you, kind of no, you do notice going from one building to the other that there yeah. is a, definitely a difference. But that building, I guess, was built in 1952, and they felt, you know, maybe we ought to do a little upgrading. It's a tough one, obviously, for members to take on, but uh, hopefully we'll have a building in four or five years that will be much better for the public also. Right. Okay, so any other major features uh, in, in the budget package? Oh, sure. I mean, there's just a whole variety of, uh, of other actions. For example, during the process, they put on the ballot... Proposition 2 of this year, which voters just recently voted on, and that allowed the mental health monies, the so-called millionaire tax proceeds that is dedicated towards mental health, it allowed the uh, the state to issue bonds to build housing for the mentally ill homeless, uh, particularly veterans. Very rough estimate, but usually when you look at those bonds in in, in the propositions, you should generally basically double it for what it's actually going to cost you over the period of the Because of interest. Because of interest. So it's like putting it on your credit card. Yeah, in some ways, I guess that's the best way to kind of well, think except, about that. Well, except, fortunately for the state, because the feds exempt 
uh, that the, the tax, uh, the, uh, the income that you earn on bonds, mm-hmm. is actually a fairly low rate. So the state borrows at a fairly, fairly okay. good rate. Okay, we only got about 30 seconds left, but I did want to ask you about some of the other interesting nuggets you might have found in the state budget. Um, anything come to mind that kind of grabbed your attention? Well, I think there's, um, there are a lot of little things that, right. uh, you know, we right. had money for, for electric uh, uh, Valley stations. Valley fever research. Uh, thing, um, exactly. EV charging stations. The charging stations is what I uh, The earthquake early warning system. We also had some, some fairly substantial policy proposals. They adopted a new way of allocating money for community colleges that I think will have to be worked out over the coming years. Um, so there were some, some large policy proposals so as well. So you've got to drill down. It's funny that, you know, say it's, it's budget to us, 2 or $3 million here or there, but there's a lot of things in that budget, and it does tell you a lot about the priorities. I want to thank Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, for being with us. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at mattyinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The views and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.